You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 26. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which, I, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. faith. Thanks, Angeline. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to RHC. It's good to have you today. My name's Simon, and we are <clears throat> continuing our series looking at the gospel made visible through the church and the sacraments. And last Sunday, we looked at baptism. And this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. So, I want to begin this morning by asking you to listen to the words of God to his people from Psalm 81. Listen to what God says. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He goes on to say, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Friends, can you hear the heart of God in the psalm? Can you feel the, the longing that God has for us to experience the goodness that he longs to give us? God desires here for you and I to taste and to see that he is good. This is the God that we gather before today. And we're going to see today how the Lord's Supper is a way of God wanting to feed us for us to taste and see that He is good. You know, the, the Lord's Supper is a way for us to, uh, for God to make the gospel visible and tangible um, to us today. It's truth that we can touch. And it's God who is inviting us to commune with Him. Now, if communion is, really is about us communing or having fellowship, having a meal with God and God feeding us Himself, then I'm sure we would all acknowledge that the stakes for that are pretty high. Uh, if you have ever had a meal with people that you consider will likely be your future in-laws, you know that the stakes are pretty high. Uh, I said this in the first congregation and I had uh, a couple who, they were the in-laws and they had that dinner last night and uh, they said they were having a good chuckle to themselves this morning. The stakes are pretty high. Now friends, imagine how much more we should be alert, aware sober-minded as we come 
to the Lord's table. And the Corinthians that Paul is writing to here are a people who seem to be somewhat ignorant about the realities of the Lord's Supper. Their ignorance, in fact, is to the extent that Paul says that they are participating in something that they consider to be the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, actually, you guys are wrong. That's not even the Lord's Supper. In other words, they are doing something that God himself doesn't even recognize as the thing itself. Have a look at verse 20. Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, I don't know how many of you would be surprised if God said that to us. We're busy, take the Lord's Supper, and then God's like, oh, by the way, that's not it. You didn't do that. In other words, there's a category in God's mind where there are things that we think we can be doing, but he says, no, 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 you've missed it so entirely that that doesn't even constitute it. A number of years ago, my son uh, and I said we would go and do push-ups, uh, sorry, pull-ups. And, uh, but we, we were going to do that down at the, uh, at the, the gym, uh, or the bars underneath our HDB flat. And uh, before we were going to do it together, I thought, you know, let me try and get a bit of a head start on him. So I would like sneak down and go and try and get a little bit stronger myself. And uh, I was telling him about all the different pull-ups that I could do and how many I could do. I could tell he was fairly impressed until we went down and started to do them. And he said, that's not a pull-up, that's a chin-up. And uh, a chin-up is way easier because you get to use your biceps. And I realized the thing that I thought I was doing, I actually wasn't doing at all. Amazingly, Paul is saying the same thing here to the church. You come together, you think you're taking the Lord's Supper, but you actually aren't. And this ignorance leads some people to be ill, he says in verse 30, and some others to die. And this means that their ignorance around the Lord's Supper is actually really serious. This is leading to real problems for them. Now, friends, the context, what we heard as we began, is God longs to feed us and to have us satisfied in Him. And so Paul wants to help these Christians meaningfully take the Lord's Supper. And so what he does is the passage begins, verse 17 to 22, with him explaining the problems. Then in verse 23 to 26, he explains what the Lord's Supper is. And then finally, verse 27 to 32, he explains how to take it, or how to take it and not die. And really is what he says. Now, we're not going to talk about death today. There's so much here that we're going to look at this over two Sundays. So this morning, we're simply going to look at what they were doing that wasn't right, and then how he positively explains what the Lord's Supper is. And next Sunday, we'll explore how to take the Lord's Supper. So uh, we have four points today. We can put up our next slide. The Lord's Supper is a meal the church takes together. It's an invitation to feed on Christ. It's a remembrance of our covenant with Him, and it strengthens us as we await the final feast. And if you want to take out your phones and take a, a photo of this next slide, that gives you a one-sentence summary, basically, of what we are saying today. So, let's dive in. The Lord's Supper is a meal the church takes together. Now, friends, as remember, the, the, the context here is that Paul is dealing with a measure of ignorance around the Lord's Supper. I've had some people talk to me after the first uh, congregation this morning and say the Lord's Supper is a strange practice in the life of the church because on the one hand, we're so familiar with it. We, we, we know so much about it. We take it frequently, twice a month here um, at RHC. And yet on the other hand, we can kind of treat it somewhat nonchalantly and maybe don't fully appreciate it. And I think that's what's happening here in Corinth. And what Paul wants to drive at them is that the Lord's Supper is not simply an individualistic exercise that is simply for our personal edification only. 
Let me say that again. That's a major point. The Lord's Supper is not simply an individualistic exercise for personal edification only. Now we see Paul make this point both positively and negatively. Positively, the phrase, when you come together, is mentioned four times in the text. So verse 17, 18, uh, next slide, 20 and 23. When you come together, he's talking to the church. When you come together, that's how the Lord's Supper gets taken. It's very clear that's something we take together. But Paul also describes negatively how their division means that they are not practicing the Lord's Supper. So verse 18, he says, When in the first place I hear that there are divisions among you. And as a result, Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. And it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, what exactly is going on here? In verse 21, Paul does explain what is happening in Corinth. He says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. That would have been a pretty wild church service. What's going on here? At church, they maybe straight after the service would have had a shared meal together, maybe like a love feast, and it seems most likely that they all brought their own food. They would have brought food, packed it back from not the Hawker Center, but from somewhere, and they would have eaten together. Now, what was happening here was that as they did this, they began to break off into different factions. And it seems like all of the wealthy people who had like tapout food from some really nice restaurant that no one else could afford and were really looking forward to their meal, they went and went in a little private group and they ate together. And meanwhile, those who were, had less means and couldn't bring food or didn't have food were hungry and kind of left aside. And this small group is just indulging themselves to the point that some are even getting drunk with all their fine liquids that they're bringing. The cool kids are doing that and there's an excluded bunch on the outside. And what was supposed to be a celebration of Jesus' body broken for the whole church, of which the church is now part as the body of Christ, was changed into a personal focus just for themselves. Personal edification. It became a focus on themselves and their clique without considering the rest of the people for whom Jesus died. I mean, the Lord's Supper is literally celebrating Jesus giving his body for us, a self-giving act of sacrifice for his people. And here they are living in the exact opposite spirit, forgetting those for whom Jesus died. And friends, Paul equates this personal care while neglecting others as both despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. It's humiliating those who have nothing because these people are ignored on the basis of their material lack. They're excluded. It's like you're not cool enough to join us or you don't have, like we don't want to share our amazing food that we brought with you. And this despises the church, friends. This is actually like a, a blatant disregard of what the church is. I mean, Paul's language here is so strong. How can Paul say this despises the church? I mean, imagine someone said to you, you despise the church of Jesus Christ. But it is despising the church of, of Christ because what we heard last Sunday, the gospel creates the church. And the reason, sorry, not last Sunday, the Sunday before, the gospel creates the church. And the, whole, uh, the, the only criteria for joining the church is not wealth, is not ethnicity, 
It's not status. It's not even how holy you are. The only criteria for entering and being a member of a church is that we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus. Jesus is the doorway. He's the gate. We all come in one by one through that. And when we enter that way, but then we break off into different groups based on career, ethnicity, wealth, preferences, and we begin to ignore those that are part of the body, we fall into exactly the same issue here. And this, Paul says, is a despising of the church of Jesus. Friends, we can see this happen in so many ways. Uh, You know, one temptation I was thinking about this week is we could even come to church and get frustrated with the crowds of people that are maybe queuing up to come up to the ballroom or queuing down to leave the ballroom afterwards and thinking, oh, these people are making me late for church and it's so hard to like find a seat. That would actually be a similar kind of idea to what Paul's getting at here, that we think we're coming to church but ignoring what the church is, these brothers and sisters that God has joined us together with. And so Paul has very strong language here. What Paul is saying is when we consider the Lord's Supper simply as something that's personal between us and God without considering the body and their needs, we're actually not taking the Lord's Supper. We're despising it. Now, why is the Lord's Supper like this? We don't have a lot of time to look at this, but if you do have your Bibles, and I hope you brought it, brought one, have a look in the previous chapter, chapter 10. In chapter 10, Paul's actually building a, a longer sustained argument here, and he's introduced the idea of the Lord's Supper in chapter 10. We don't have time to explain it all this morning. But in 10 verse 16, he makes this comment, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, that word participation is the word koinonia. It's this rich fellowship, not just between us and God, but between us, God, and his people. So when Paul says, the cup of blessing, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ with all of God's people? And then he says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And lest we think the body is just Jesus' broken body, he's talking about the church here. Because look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many, we are one body. We all partake of the one bread. Friends, Paul is is saying here that the church is Jesus' body that he gave himself for. And when we remember his broken body, we're remembering that we got grafted in and become the people of God, Jesus' body, through that sacrifice. And so to take that sacrifice while neglecting the other people that Jesus actually bled for and died for is the height of irony. We can't separate these. Friends, in another way, it's almost like Paul saying, You can't just have Jesus on your own. Now, I know that in our day and age, in a hyper-individualistic world, or a world that certainly in the West and quickly coming to our nation, that's becoming more and more individualized, this is not how we're naturally inclined to think. We're inclined to think through individual lenses between us and God. But the New Testament writes in, in deeply corporate language. That's not to undermine the personal relationship we have with Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus relates to us, speaks to us, guides us, but he uh, sees us as his body. And Paul is in some sense saying, you can't just have Jesus on your own. In some sense, if you do, that's not Jesus fully. Jesus comes with his body. 
He comes with his church. It's like in Singapore, you say, you know, I want to buy a car, but uh, I don't really want the COE, and um, I don't really want to, you know, get my little uh, thing that, you know, um, charges me money as I go through the ERP. In Singapore, you can't have a car without the COE. The two come together. They are bound together. Now, friends, Jesus is not giving us a negative example of something we have to pay for. Jesus is saying with him comes something beautiful and glorious. The fullness of him is known in his body, the people. We all are a gift to one another. Now, friends, how can we be tempted to this kind of thinking in our own lives? Well, as as I've alluded to already, we could think of communion as just me and Jesus, got nothing to do with anyone else. We may not take into account other people's experiences of church. I mean, notice here, Paul says, you're humiliating your brother. How they felt with being alienated, isolated, shamed, that constitutes what is concerning to Paul. How you make your fellow brothers and sisters feel at church. We could think communion has nothing to do with the experience of those in church and whether or not they feel the self-giving love of Jesus for them. Friends, there are some people in our nation, there are some churches that teach that you can take the Lord's Supper by yourself at home as a kind of personal medicine for your health or for your wealth. Now, we as a church do not make it our practice to talk and critique all kinds of different beliefs out there. We don't have time for that. But there are sometimes teachings that are propagated in our circles or in our nation that is when the text addresses it is important for us to mention friends to talk about the lord's supper as something you could take like a kind of charm or kind of spiritual medicine that you can just take at home if you're feeling unwell is with all due respect exactly the opposite of what paul is talking about here the spirit of that, friends, is exactly the, exactly what Paul is, is challenging here. This is a, a communal experience together. So we are, therefore, to t- I'm sorry the sermon starts uh, so heavy, but that's the text. We do not have anywhere else to go. We're to take the Lord's Supper actively considering those around us. That's what he's positively um, talking about. We'll talk about this more next week. Now, some people ask, does this mean that the Lord's Supper can only be taken in the church as we're gathered together like this? Now, friends, I will be honest with you. That has been the majority view throughout church history, where most Christians have believed that the church gathered together because of these texts, comes together uh, and takes the Lord's Supper together as one people, and not in smaller groups like community groups or weddings, etc., etc., etc. Now, there are some people who, on the basis of Scripture, say we don't think that Scripture is that tight. You've got to argue that from a couple of different passages. It's not crystal clear that it says that, and they think they're passages that indicate there's more liberty from that point of view. So we as a church are not trying to take a view and a position and say this is the only way to read the Bible, etc. But as a church, we do need to have a practice uh, that we live, live out together as a church. And what's clear is that in this church, in Corinth, they're specifically asked, what Paul is writing to them is, to, he specifically asked them, can you wait for each other, which we'll talk about more next week, and discern the body together? And for Paul, this clearly is the richest or the fullest or the deepest meaning of 
communion. And so therefore, it has been many churches' practice, and it is ours as well as a church, that we <clears throat> do not encourage the Lord's Supper to be taken, community groups, etc., but rather as we gather together as one people on a Sunday um, together. But this is not something that we want to bind people's consciences over, and we know some people have, do have slightly different views, but that is our practice together as a church. So, I think I didn't mention earlier, our, first, our point one and two are a little bit longer this morning, and then three and four are a little quicker. So, let's have a look at our second point. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to feed upon Christ. Let's read verse 24, or 23. When, what I received from the Lord, I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll be able to look a little bit more next week at verse 32, and so we can't dive into it in detail now, but verse 32 shows that Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus, is present in the Lord's Supper. And this means, friends, that Jesus himself, when we take the Lord's Supper, is present by his Spirit, giving himself, offering himself to us. Jesus is saying to us, take and eat. Now, last Sunday I was uh, preaching at Inling, and Edward assigned me John chapter 6. They're preaching through John's gospel, and John 6 is where Jesus talks about him being the bread of life. Amazing providence that last Sunday I was literally looking at that. And that passage in John 6 where Jesus says, you must take my flesh and eat my blood, is the true reality to which the Lord's Supper points. And Jesus says there, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. So let's think about this. What does it mean to eat or to feed upon Jesus? I'm sure if you're visiting here and you're not a Christian or you're just exploring church, that probably will really weird you out and sound really kind of gross. Well, Jesus does, Jesus frequently has very strong statements that he makes. He's trying to get through to us. And Jesus calls himself here the bread of life, and refers to and says that for us to have life, we must eat and feast upon him. What exactly does this mean? Well, bread in, those, in that part of the world was the staple. That's what people ate. That was what constituted most of their meals. If he was, Jesus was in China or Asia, I'm sure he would have said, I'm the rice of life or the noodles of life or something along those lines. Um, but that's what, that's what sustained you and gave you energy and got you going through the day that you need, particularly for day laborers and those who are working with their hands. If you don't have that, you're not going to finish the day. So when I was on sabbatical a couple of months ago, I decided, uh, wisely or foolishly, I'm still trying to decide, that I would do my first half marathon, uh, trying to keep up with my wife, who does more of these things than I do. And so in my research, I discovered if you want to complete a half marathon and you want to get a decent time, there's two things that you need, not just one. Most people think you only need to train. You, you do need to train. So the first part is training. You've got to run those miles, have a training program, follow it. That's what you've got to do. Okay, great. But there's something else because you can train as much as you want and something can still go horribly wrong on the day. On the day itself, regardless of how much you've trained, you need a fuel source. You need energy because when you hit about the 10-kilometer mark, your body has worked through all the fuel that you've uh, taken in from eating beforehand, and you're finished. And if you don't have gel packs or some kind of energy pack on you to start eating there and at various intervals, you will do what's called hitting the wall. 
Now your legs are able to go, you're fit enough to go, but your body has, is, doesn't have any energy. It's, it's just finished, it's flat. It's like the batteries are dead. And it doesn't matter how much you've trained, you need ongoing nutrients and sustenance and energy to help you finish the race. Friends, if I can use this analogy, the Christian life contains much training and preparation. And as a church, we love that kind of stuff. We love theology. We love the Bible. We love learning about the gospel and how to think about the faith. And we do GIW and we teach the Bible in CGs. We love this kind of stuff. But friends, that's not enough. We don't only need to learn in our heads about how the Christian faith works. We need to be nourished and satisfied by Jesus himself who sustains us day by day. On a Tuesday morning, when your boss is yelling at you, or you just lost a huge deal, or something went wrong, and your life is flashing before your eyes, what you need, friends, is to have fellowship with Jesus, and to know Jesus is with you, and, and, and loves you, and has paid for all your sins, and is bringing you to glory, and will never leave or forsake you. And his joy is present in you. Friends, we as Christians can very easily live hitting the wall or, maybe to use another analogy, with a kind of spiritual hangriness where Jesus is not sustaining us. It's that feeling we feel. We're really looking forward to something, then it comes and goes. The date is over and now there's an emptiness or the bonus is spent and all the joy we experienced and we're looking forward to is, is over or the trip is, is finished. And C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. Or you were made to be satisfied by Jesus himself who's come from another world to love you and to know you. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Open wide your mouth. And I will fill it. Friends, Jesus here is promising in the Lord's Supper to be our strength, to be what nourishes us, what sustains us through to the end. And he makes this promise to us through a meal. He reminds us through a meal, which is an invitation to ongoing friendship and fellowship with God himself. Friends, the sustenance we need is not just frameworks or how to think about things as helpful as those are but the living presence of Jesus in our hearts, nourishing us. And Jesus says, here I am for you. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. As your stomach is filled with this meal, so here I am filling and sustaining you. Friends, how do we do this? Friends, Jesus is here present by his spirit and the way that we draw near to him is through our faith in him. Jesus is present here by his spirit, but it's possible for us to walk in and out and have no fellowship with him because we do not believe. We do not draw near to him by faith, the scriptures say. So how do we chew or be nourished on Jesus? When feeling maybe guilt over sin, maybe you've come in this morning feeling incredibly guilty about how you've lived or things that you've done, the body reminds us his body was broken for our sins. He carried our sins upon the cross. That guilt has been washed away and, and, and taken. Where maybe you feel frail in body or mind, maybe mentally. Maybe you feel like there's no future or no hope for you. That body r reminds you that through your faith in Jesus, 
You're going to get a renewed body, live in a renewed creation because Jesus died for your and my sins and conquered that death through his resurrection and rose for you with a new body that you will inherit one day. When we feel maybe no power to resist sin and we just feel like giving it in, we take Christ in us and we, by faith, feed on him who dwells in us and by his spirit who empowers us, friends, to say no to sin. Friends, and this meal is a tangible reminder for us. The elements that we'll take in a little while are truths that we can touch. And we need this kind of assurance. These signs become a tangible physical signs for us. Now, there are some people who say, well, I mean, if your faith is strong enough, why do you need a sign? Why do you need a symbol? Does God think that we're so weak that we need like visible, tangible reminders of this? And the answer is yes. God knows. God doesn't just think we're weak. God knows that we're weak. He knows that our faith is frail. It's okay for us to admit it. And then to thank God that there's a way that he's made for us to be reminded tangibly and visibly. So friends, this morning, can I invite us to just marvel that God is delighted to not simply give us just the gospel in words, but in multisensorial forms. When we become Christians, we are plunged into the water. We, we, we come out wet and dripping. We're immersed into Jesus. Every two weeks at church, we take the, the bread and the juice, symbolizing we live, we feed upon Jesus. This is how much God loves us, friends. He's saying, I don't simply want your faith to be cerebral. I want you to touch, to taste, to experience me. So, friends, if you're weak this morning, open wide your mouth. Let him fill it. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of our covenant with him. In verse 25, Paul talks about the cup. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying that as we take the Lord's Supper, it's not just remembering his body, not just that that nourishes us, but the cup specifically points to the covenant, the promises that he's made that we uh, are forgiven of our sins. This covenant that is promises and obligations. So what are some of the covenant promises that we need reminders of? Hebrews 8 tells us, God says, the covenant is this, I will be your God. You will be my people. They all, everyone who's trusted in Jesus, they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will remember their sins no more. Friends, this means to remember here is to strengthen our faith in the reality of who God is and what God has done for us. Now, in the English language, when we think about the, the phrase remembering, we can think about remembering in a very kind of thin way, not in a very rich way. So, you know, if I go uh, back to South Africa, sometimes I'll spend time with my parents. Sometimes my mom will like, want to tell me stories about people that met me when I was three years old, her great aunts, this and that, etc., and then tells me some info about them or what happened or reminds me of some person. But it's got zero connection to my real life, and it's just some info that I, I wasn't uh, poorer for not having had. It's just a, a point of conversation. And we can sometimes think that remembering communion is a little bit like that. We're just remembering something that happened like 2,000 years ago. 
But that's not what this is like at all, friends. This remembering is about establishing us in our identity, reminding us who we are uh, and what a part of our heritage is. The Rugby World Cup is on at the moment, and so most of the time I'm very proud to have come from South Africa, uh, except this morning when I woke up and saw that we lost to Ireland, which was very sad, um, and I wasn't very proud to be a South African then. And then the craziest thing happened. As I stood up to preach in the first congregation, this is no exaggeration, there was like a moment of silence, and some guy in about the third row over there opened his phone to read the Bible, and he had been watching the highlights of the game. So as his phone opened, there was like complete silence, and you just heard this commentator say, and South Africa have lost to Ireland. I was like, how can this be? How, how is this possible? And in that moment, I was reminded of something that wasn't just like distant ancient history that had no bearing. It like cut me deep. Now, friends, when Paul talks here about remembering, Paul is not just telling you, oh, there's some bit of info that happened in another part of the world. Paul is, is telling us about something that is fundamental to us and our history and our people and who we are. It's far richer, friends. Communion is a reminder to both parties of this covenant in a way that encourages both parties to act consistent and to be faithful to the covenant. When I was many, many years ago, when I was in South Africa, I had my own business. And we had this one client, man, he did not like paying the bills. He did not like paying them ever, and he certainly didn't like paying them on time. And sometimes I would have to like go down to his shop and, you know, after like phoning and emailing and phoning again and again, then I'd have to like arrive there. Then he sees me. And when he sees me, he's like, hey, remember me, remember me. Now, when I say remember me, I'm not just saying, hey, did you forget that out of all the 7 billion people in this world, there's one South African called Simon Murphy. Don't forget me. No, I'm saying to him, buddy, remember me. Remember that, remember that covenant we have? Remember that contract you signed? Remember that money that you owe me? I'm asking for you to make good on your word and your promises. When we take the Lord's Supper and we drink the cup, friends, we are reminding ourselves of what Jesus has promised to do. We're reminding him, Lord, don't have mercy on me. Remember and help me, Lord, to remember that I am yours and I belong to you. It's like if you've ever, you know, seen two kids, like maybe two five-year-olds who are like recently discovered the concept of being best friends on the playground and they're like telling each other they're each other's best friends all the time. You're my best friend. No, you're my best friend, you know. Oh, well, you know, and they just like, just goes backwards and forwards the whole time. Every day they see each other. Hey, this is my best friend. You're my best friend, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's going on? Are, are they worried that they will forget? It's not just about remembering. They are like reinforcing the identity. We're like bound together. We're, we're besties here. There's a sense of security that they get. When we take this, friends, we are remembering. We are God's. He's ours. Our sins are forgiven. He's bringing us to glory. Communion is a way, friends, for us to abide in the reality of that covenant. And in our weakness, we need this reminder to help one another. We need this tangible reminder. You know, friends, we can come into church and we can feel very unworthy of God and His grace. Particularly for those of us who sin repetitively in the same ways again and again. 
I mean, maybe you've come in this morning and you feel like you've betrayed Jesus deeply. And you're wondering if he still loves you. This text tells us, on the night Jesus was betrayed. He knows betrayal. You're not the first person to have done it. And on that night, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to Judas. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Friends, you can be here today. You may need reminders of the Jesus who knows what it's like to be betrayed. That even in that moment, he gave thanks to God and offered himself for you. To those of us who are weak in faith, we need tangible reminders of God's grace and his kindness to us. And we do this to one another as we take the supper. Friends, Jesus is saying to you today, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And finally, the Lord's Supper is to strengthen us as we await the final feast. In verse 26, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now friends, there's a lot going on in the Lord's Supper. That's why we look at our next passage next Sunday. There's a sense where we're looking back. We're remembering his, his body broken for us on the cross for our sins, his blood shed for us. Here, amazingly, we're looking forward. We're looking to that final feast. When Jesus instituted the supper, he pointed forward to the fact that he will celebrate and eat a banquet meal with us in heaven one day when he comes. Jesus says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is waiting, friends, for an amazing feast. And this feast is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 25. If you're a foodie, if you love feasting, listen to what God promises, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is the veil? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, we are living as Christians now. Between Jesus' first coming where he died for our sins and rose again and his second coming. We're a people who are anchored in the present, nourished by Jesus who feeds us based on two things. Two focal points in history. His first coming, he died and rose again. And his second coming where he's coming back again. We look back, friends, to know that there's no guilt in us. Our sins are forgiven. We belong to God. We look forward, waiting for that day where he will return and usher us into that kingdom. And that, friends, enables us to endure all kind of suffering, adversity, mediocrity, and difficulty in this life. We're waiting for our true life to be revealed. And this meal, friends, this piddly little COVID-proof 
plastic wrapped bread and grape juice, not even wine. It's such a piddly display. But it is a display, friends, of a feast that you and I are invited into. A feast with so much laughter and Friends, that first day in heaven, we're going to wake up in the morning. We're not going to be able to stand up properly because our stomachs are going to be so sore from having laughed so much. There's going to be so much joy. It's going to be unbelievable. And that's what you and I are invited into. And we are living now. We're taking these elements as as a sign of that day. We're looking forward, friends. As we take these, we're proclaiming the hope of the gospel to put strength into us for now. We look back, our sins are forgiven. We look forward to where Jesus is taking us and by faith we're nourished by him now. And this, friends, is why we need to do this together because all of us need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. Friends, we need one another to preach this gospel to ourselves. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the Christian needs another who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. Why? Bonhoeffer says this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. What is Bonhoeffer saying? He's not saying that Jesus in your own heart is not strong and powerful. He's saying we have a temptation in our own hearts to not believe all of Jesus' promises. Or we find excuses. We think, that doesn't really apply to me. You don't know how badly I've sinned. You don't really know like, how I've lived my life. And we find ways of minimizing Christ's work in our own hearts. But the word in, of Christ in the mouth of our brother, take and eat. Christ for you forgives all your sins is stronger and we need to be reminded of this again and again friends therefore the lord's supper is a meal the church takes together the lord's supper friends is an invitation to feed upon jesus by faith now the lord's supper is a remembrance of this covenant that he has made with us and the lord's supper strengthens us now as we await that final feast Friends, our Father and Jesus longs to feed you. Open wide your mouth and he will fill it. I want to ask if we can take 30 seconds by ourselves before God. Reflecting on what we've heard, what he may be calling us to, how we can respond to him. Maybe you're here, you aren't a Christian. I would urge you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, as many of us in this room have done already. Maybe you need to rethink how you consider the body of Christ or the promises Jesus makes. Let's do this, and then I'll pray for us in a moment. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that 
you love us so extravagantly and you want us to remember this. Father, we confess, I confess how easy it is for me to be nonchalant about the Lord's Supper without recognizing the rich symbolism and the way that you'd long to feed us through it. And so I pray that you would fill us with faith this morning as we prepare to take the supper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.